Welcome to episode 223, I'm Not Crossing That Line. This week we're discussing season 7, episode 15 of Buffy, Get It Done, and season 4, episode 22 of Battlestar Galactica, Daybreak, part 2. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. Buffy is first this week with Get It Done. Um, <laughs> get Her Done. Get Her Done. Um, totally didn't plan to talk about the title, but while we're thinking about it, I don't feel like that's a direct quote from the episode, right? But... Oh. Ooh, I don't I, know. I, I can't think of any instance where someone says that, but I guess it's... It's consistent with this, like, what we'll get to as Buffy's, like, no-nonsense, everybody-sucks-but-me speech, as Anya calls it. Um, like, this this kind of sense of, um, kind of what Giles was saying in, was it the last episode or the one before about we don't have time for anything other than focusing on this battle with the first. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I guess this episode is about figuring out whatever your job is, whatever your skill is, whatever the thing is that makes you, you know, valuable or useful or not just a total waste of space or, you know, luggage to be carted around by other people get to do in that job. Um, and if you don't know what it is, then figure it out. Um, so yeah, that's how I, is there, is that how you would have interpreted that title? Is there something else that? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't think I've ever really thought about the title that much. Um, According to the transcript, you're right. It's not a direct quote, although transcripts are sometimes funny. It could be, there could be like a period or something that it, that's like screwing it up or something. I, you know what I mean? Like, sure. Um, but yeah, I don't. Sure, but I, I did, but I did watch it twice and I, yeah, I'm not, I'm reasonably confident. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I've just sort of searching through it. It doesn't seem to be. Uh, a direct quote from anything. Um, certainly not from like Buffy's speech and mm-hmm. um, or any other notable thing. So yeah, um, yeah. While we're at it, uh, I mean, I guess just sort of uh, on the way, by way of um, production notes, it's written and directed by Doug Petrie, which there aren't a lot of Buffy episodes that are written and directed by the same person um most of them that are are joss whedon and then i think david greenwald does like one or two that he writes and directs both but otherwise Mm -hmm. um fairly rare um that that happens so Mm -hmm. uh not that that's a big deal necessarily just kind of um throwing that out there and then uh yeah i i don't I I think what you said makes sense. I can't say that I've thought that hard about the title. So I I don't 
I don't have any objections to what you said or, or different ways to look at it. So I think it works uh, well. Um, we'll we'll just say that overall, like as an episode, I feel like this is definitely one of those workhorse moving pieces into place types of episodes. Um, we, sure. We, yeah. we do get a lot of good mythology stuff, I think, from just what is the Slayer and all of that. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about that, of course. But I, I do feel like there's a lot of like setting the stage um, mm-hmm. type of work going on here. Um, not just in the fight against the first, but also with like internal conflicts and that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in a few different directions, I think. So, yeah, uh, you know, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as we go through. But um, yeah. I, I definitely think it's one of those. Uh, it, it's hard to talk about from, like, a plot perspective, even though there is kind of a plot to it. But it's definitely, uh, yeah, moving the, moving the pieces around sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Not necessarily the most... Um, memorable standout, you know, concept episode, but like it does, it does what it says on the tin, right? (laughs) Like it's, it's, it gets, it's like, it has a job to do and it just sort of gets on with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Like not memorable from a story perspective per se, but well, I do as, feel not like not in the same way as like the experimental pieces or anything. Like it's right. It's not like a memorable. It's, it's not memorable as an episode. But I think I think a lot of there are a lot of things that people remember from this episode, hmm. like the speech, which we'll talk about for sure. Um, like the Slayer origin stuff. Like even um, you know, sort of like Spike putting the jacket back on, which he hasn't worn mm-hmm. for a while. And, mm-hmm. uh, a few, you know, some of those types of things that I think if asked, like even some of the hard, hardest core Buffy fans would struggle. Uh, well, and, and Chloe hanging herself, um, yeah. would be the, would be the other one. I was, I knew there was like another one I was trying to think of. Like, I think those are all things that people would remember happening, but would struggle to place them in an episode. And I guess that's sure. where kind of the distinction is. Like, yeah. like you know, like you mentioned the episode Hush and immediately, you know, yeah. what's going on. You have a visual of the gentleman. You have like, you know, all of the sort of things that go along with that. This one, I feel is like the opposite. It's like you can remember all of the ingredients of the soup but don't really remember what recipe they go to mm-hmm. <laughs> um so to speak uh so <laughs> if i can if i'm allowed to use that metaphor and won't get banned from our podcast for doing so <laughs> um that's funny yeah um yeah yeah no i think that's right there are actually like a lot of really interesting pieces of this yeah um, all right, well, let's talk about them. Um, I kind of want to do like the Buffy stuff first. So uh, going sort of in order of the episode um, starts with what turns out to be a dream um, where she's checking on all of the slayers as they're sleeping late at night and then um, finds Kirk or comes across Chloe crying um, and then just gets 
tackled out of nowhere by <laughs> what turned out to be the the first Slayer, the yeah, you know, Rastafari and like Cavewoman Slayer, um, who says it's not enough, and then that's when she wakes up. Um, so. <sighs> Not to talk about Chloe's suicide, um, you know, right now, but I guess I, the question that occurs to me is, is this a warning about, I mean, the fact that Chloe is singled out as, you know, having a hard time or being upset or needing help or comfort of some kind, um... I don't know. Do you think that that is a prophetic dream of some kind? Is it a warning from like the, you know, the spirit of the original Slayer that's kind of trying to let her know that this might be coming? Is, is this a like psychological thing of Buffy's picking up on, you know, struggles and vibes that she doesn't necessarily know what they mean, but, but there's some, something's cluing her in enough that she's dreaming about, you know, Chloe, um, you know, and I guess that has something to do with choices and fate and all that kind of thing of how much of, of Chloe's thing is, if not inevitable, at least foreshadowed (laughs) or how much is Buffy warned about it? You know, how much is it seen to be coming? Or is it just that she's sort of picking up on the psychology of what Chloe's going through. I mean, cause she's been singled out before as the youngest. So it's not really a stretch to say that Buffy's noticed that she is having a harder time or struggling with these things. Um, and I think we've seen that even in earlier episodes, even though it wasn't quite like this bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I think we're definitely prompted to see this as sort of prophetic mm-hmm. dreaming. Um, well, I mean, we've seen examples of that elsewhere in Buffy, even in relation to the potentials. Like, remember the early episodes where, you know, we're seeing... Um, you know, right, sort of in this thing. Right, about bef- all of their their attacks, their and attacks and killings and stuff. Right. right, and right, and then after a few episodes, we learn that that's a dream. But even, I mean, even earlier than that, like Buffy has sort of prophetic mm-hmm. dreams. So, like, I don't, I, I definitely think it's within the realm of possibility that we can see this as prophetic. Um, and of course, it's a callback to Restless. Right. So one of your favorite episodes, I think, still uh, at this point, even right like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, being in a dream where the first layer is sort of attacking or, you know, whatever people um, we're only missing the cheese man. Um, yeah, it's not quite as uh, surrealist as those no no of course not but other than that but you know now you know what is the nature of that sort of prophetic thing like is it like you you mentioned like psychological you know picking up on 
that sort of thing. I mean, psychological, psychic, like, is what mm. sort of connection does she already have to the potentials? Like, if she was already dreaming about them when they were, like, half a world away, then, like, when she's got a bunch of them right in the house, then certainly that could be part of it, that there's just some sort of, like, underlying... Mm-hmm. Connection, right, or somehow, you know, yeah. whatever that's going on there. So I, I think that's certainly possible as well. Um, and yeah, like Chloe, like you said, like she's already been sort of picked on a bit. Um, I mean, we've only seen her in one other episode before, I believe. Oh, is that all? Okay, but well, it's 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 hard because like I once mean, the potential starts showing up. They, Sometimes they're there, but they're just sort of in the background. They so. all, yeah, like they all just sort of like appear like suddenly, right? Like it's like we get yeah. a few and then like the floodgates kind of open. Um, so, yeah, so maybe she's been in a couple so far, but like, um, yeah, like definitely it's possible that Buffy sort of like picked up on, you know, the fact that like maybe some of the others were saying things about her or just seeing how she was reacting to some of the stuff going on or whatever. Like, hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I won't go too much further down because then we'll start getting into, like, the suicide yeah. and speech and stuff. And, and those deserve their own conversations. But um, yeah. I, well, I, I, so... I guess the other thing I would ask, though, in terms of the dream, though, is is what the first slayer says is it's not enough and so mm-hmm. how do you interpret that like what what is it that isn't enough or what isn't there enough of maybe that mm-hmm. uh is part of this prophecy because that like that's the part that buffy seems to take to heart mm. in so far as like she even repeats that later to robin that's weird mm-hmm. to call him that. To Principal Wood. Um, I tried it. I he tried said, it. He said to... I tried it. Yeah. It didn't work. We'll just keep calling him. Doesn't Principal. he say in this episode to call him Robin? Yep. Yeah. He does. And it yeah. sounds weird when he says it, too. And probably nobody uh, heeds his request. Yeah, I don't um, think... The only other person who calls him by name is Amanda, I think, right? And she calls him Principal Wood. Right. Naturally, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um... Right, like Buffy says Robin, but like, is she going to stick to that? Probably not. Um, yeah, that's funny. I'll have to, I did know, after we had that conversation last time, it did make me laugh when in this episode he was like, call me Robin. Yeah. And I was like, no thanks. Um, right, right. Okay, so it's to him that Buffy repeats the it's not enough, which is... After the dream, but before the suicide. So she doesn't necessarily have, like, a specific reference of what the dream meant, other than just being generally, like, you know, Mm -hmm. portentous and everything. Um, I mean, so, I, I mean, I think you could interpret it a bunch of different ways, and I think she probably does, like, throughout the episode. Like, when she's... So, I mean, to kind of transition to talking about her tour of the house with Robin. Um, 
feel like I have to like make a big deal now every time I say Robin. Um, Robin. Robin. <laughs> um, I was just listening to Corey's the Mythgard Academy thing about the Hitchhiker's Guide and the character named Slarty Bartfast, and mm. then he made a connection to Tim from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Of there are some who call me Tim. Um, so I feel like I, it needs a big pregnant pause every time you say sure. Robin. <laughs> um, what was I talking about? She's giving him the... Okay, so when she's giving him the tour and she's kind of going all of, over all of like their assets, like there's Willow with her magic and her like armfuls of weaponry and then there's Andrew who you know bakes and makes like uh maps that don't really tell you anything and um you know and then there's Kennedy training all the slayers and you know all that kind of thing and I so I guess the it's not enough is about that like their general state of readiness for the fight mm. of you know we don't have a ton of people and some of them are quite skilled or quite powerful. Like Willow is obviously much more powerful than she looks. Mm -hmm. Um, but not everybody. It's not like they've got an entire, uh, team full of superheroes. There's also a lot of weakness and inexperience in the group. Um, and fear. So Sure. So I guess it's when she says it's not enough, it's more about that, like of, you know, this team that we've assembled mm. isn't really up to the challenge ahead. Um, I don't know. After you add the suicide in, um, I think you have to interpret the, the first Slayer's words as being more about Buffy's relationship to the potentials. Um, mm. like it, if it's a prophetic dream of what's coming, it becomes kind of about what it, she can't do enough to prepare them or protect them or mentor them or guide them for what's coming. Like maybe nothing she can do is capable of conveying that to them or forcing them to kind of become mature and capable overnight or quickly enough to face what's coming. Um, and then by the end, I think it has a completely different meaning in light of what she sees at the end, you know, of, of just the sheer scale of what they're up yeah. against. Um, I guess it kind of goes back to that original interpretation of, it's not enough, like, we are not capable of meeting this. But then it's like, I, well, I'm jumping ahead, but it's less about, like, that, you know, their people don't have the skills or the courage or whatever to face what's coming. And just, it doesn't matter how powerful or skilled they are, just from a sheer numbers point of view. Mm. Like... It, they could all they could have an army of willows and would they be 
capable of standing up to these odds. Maybe not. Um, so that's, those are my like multi-interpretation. There's probably more, but. Yeah, no, I think that's all, that's all right. Um, cool. So, all right. So Buffy brings Robin to, <laughs> to the house, uh -huh. um, with, with, uh, well, so, okay. I know we weren't talking about this rival kit till later, but like, that's where, like, he tells her about it first, right? And is like, oh, by the way, I have this bag my mom had with, like, Slayer stuff here. Um, and sort of, I only mention it there because that's, it's almost like a trade of, like, it's not, like, quite phrased that way, but it's kind of like, hey, I did this nice thing for you and, like, turned over this, like, Slayer, you know, heirloom. Now show me your house and like hmm. what, what all is going on there. Like, I don't know. Did you get that sense? That's kind of the sense I always get in. Hmm. And I don't, it's not quite, it's not explicit, but mm -hmm. like almost of that, like do something nice for someone. And then they like kind of feel obligated for you. Hmm. Um, sure. And I don't even mean that like in a malicious or like a, manipulative way per se although i guess it is kind of manipulative if you're looking at it that way but like i don't know um yeah yeah i i don't know i that didn't occur to me really at the time but um i don't disagree i would probably have to watch it again to see like exactly like you know how it strikes me or whatever but i guess that's part of him being initiated into the group and everything is like, is that kind of exchange of resources and information and everything mm -hmm. like, um, as much as the last episode was about them, like going on a date, like it was more really about his, he and Buffy like feeling each other out as like allies in this fight mm -hmm. is like still, I think the primary focus of the relationship, like they're not like a couple. It's like, you know, even if there's like an attraction there, it's more about you are, you know, someone who could fight alongside us in the coming battle. Um, so maybe that's just like the polite way to kind of get yourself in with the group is like, to offer them something that they might need. But uh, the most interesting part of it that jumped out to me was the fact that he should have passed this on like mm. decades ago, you know, like to whoever the next slayer it, was. Yeah. Generations of slayers have been deprived of some pretty vital information, you know, that he's had in this survival kit. Like some of it is just normal, like weapons and stuff, but like, the shadow casters at least, and maybe some more stuff is pretty unique and, you know, passes on some well, pretty, uh, important stuff that, um, and it makes Buffy you... certainly didn't have. And it sounds like none of the ones immediately prior to her 
have had, which probably puts them at a disadvantage. Yeah. So, right, because his his mother, Robin's mother, was the Slayer in like the seventies, right? right? And yeah, so I mean, we're talking the nineties, so like twenty years, but like assuming that like Buffy being the exception, you know, has now lasted almost seven years. Like probably there were some layers that didn't even last a few months. Right. right. So like could easily be talking about a dozen or, or 20 slayers who could have taken advantage of this, um, mm-hmm. you know, stuff, you know, brings up the other question of, you know, what do the watchers know? Like, what did mm. they just assume that it had been stolen and was irretrievably lost? I mean, it was kind of stolen <laughs> in a way, mm-hmm. but also like. Right. Or do they like, did they even care to track it or, you know, realize that it had value? Right. And um, what would have happened had they done so and found that there was the son of a slayer, right? Like. Right. Because, like, he, like, the other thing is that, like, he was really young. So, like, mm-hmm. we don't really know who took care of him and, you know, brought him up and stuff. Like, you know. Did how, he say his mother's watcher did, or am I remembering that right? Oh, did? Well, in which case, makes it even kind of weirder than that, like, I think you're right, actually. Now that we, now that you say that, I think you're right that he's his mother's watcher. That's why he has. That's why he has some fighting skill. Is like he doesn't have super strength, but he's been like trained. So then it is. It's kind of even weirder that like his mother's watcher didn't like turn over this bag to like the watchers council or something. Right. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, I've never really thought about it. Like, maybe we don't need to go too far down that particular road. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not, I don't necessarily think it's, like, a big, like, clue to anything in particular. It's just, like, I guess more of, like, a character thing for Robin. Um, Like, in his, like, I can't help it. (laughs) Such a silly name. Um, More, like, in his, you know, his, his, building the backstory and everything Mm -hmm. of he is an ally. He's a fighter. He's on the side of the good on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's all this like baggage of literal, you know, in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That he's, so he's not, he's not a completely uncomplicated good guy either. Like, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, and we'll get into him and Spike, like, there's, he, there are people fighting on the same side who don't necessarily think of themselves as allies to each other. So that obviously could cause for, could cause problems down the road. But anyway, um, you know, day late and a dollar short, he does pass this bag on eventually. Um and all right. So before we get into that, though, um, before that is Chloe's suicide and Buffy's reaction. Um, 
Which is definitely, like, you mentioned that as one of the memorable parts of the episode. And it is pretty shocking. Um, especially, like, not that the show's ever shied away from, like, all darkness or, you know, tough themes or whatever. But, like, kind of is pretty brutal to take the youngest, most vulnerable of the potentials mm. and, you know, have her, you know, kill herself on screen and everything um, in a, you know, what is it on CW or whatever yeah. show for, for teenagers and everything like that's, sure. you know, it's a bold move. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I have uh, a lot to add to that, but yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, and leading up to it, too, we have Kennedy's, like, drilling of her and calling her, you know, calling her maggot in front of get, getting to do her, like, drill sergeant kind of thing but I don't know I don't really it occurs to me now that this is probably fuel for the anti-Kennedy um camp hmm. um I don't really feel like it's portrayed as Kennedy's fault per se though like I don't know I could be wrong about that I mean we really only see her be that way to Chloe. So I guess you could kind of take that as evidence of like, you know. Well, no, she yells, like, she yells at Amanda too when, when Amanda says oh, hi true. to the principal. I, so I think, uh, I think the first says it to Kennedy as a way to get at Kennedy. But I don't necessarily like because the first also says like we were up all night talking. And so. And that like, well, so I uh, unreliable narrator that the first is, um, you know, the first also is like, you know, we were up all night talking and Chloe realized that like it's hopeless, it's pointless, it's like whatever, meaning that like the first was telling her that, right? Like how hopeless Mm -hmm. and whatever, everything. So like, I don't, I don't necessarily think we need to like, believe that Kennedy is at fault or is even being, you know, portrayed as being at fault. But I, I see what you're saying as far as like, yeah, like she is kind of mean and drill sergeanty and all of that. And so, there's a sense which, you know, she could share in some of the blame, or at least that's what the first is trying to do mm-hmm. um, in that particular line. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't necessarily take it. It's more like in retrospect and thinking about, like, the conversation we had about Kennedy's, like, lack of popularity in some circles. Um you know, like, she's not necessarily 
I think this is consistent with that. She's not necessarily portrayed as like the nicest person in the sense of somebody whose priority is the feelings of, you know, the people that like, she's not necessarily a mean person when she's dealing with Willow, but she was like shown to be like blunt and straightforward. And she's been shown to be very proactive with wanting to, you know, throw herself into the fight, um, you know, be a leader among the potentials, prove herself, all this stuff. So I feel like that's kind of more in line with what her as the drill sergeant is trying to get at. Like, I don't think it's trying to, you know, portray her as like a bully necessarily. Um, but, you know, I guess there is a point to be made about words having effects that you don't necessarily intend, you know, like, I, I don't think it's because of what Kennedy does that Chloe makes her decision, but it could have been a factor in the sense of, you know, the first is going to lie with the truth. Like it's going to use things that other people have already been saying or Chloe's interpretation of what people think of her in order to kind of manipulate her. Um, so yeah, um, anything about, uh, anything else about the suicide itself other than like everybody's reaction to it? Yeah, no. I I mean, other than the the creepy image of the first, like, standing, like... Next to the body. Beside herself, yeah. Yeah. Right. And the, like... And using Buffy's voice to repeat what Mm -hmm. she was saying. Um, Right, right. So they know that those are her words. Like, this is... She's quoting. I mean, we, we know it. We know, but that's sure, what they're supposed like, to that's infer. What, yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I don't have anything to add about the actual suicide. Um, well, and letting us know, too. I mean, I think we kind of knew anyway, but, like, if it's quoting her, the fact that it's eavesdropping on all of these conversations. Like, right. that was when she's just talking to Robin, um, it's like not in a scene with the first there. Mm-hmm. So like, are we just to assume that the first is listening like all the time, basically is a question. Yeah. Well, right. So like we know that the, the first can only appear in the form of, you know, someone who has died or whatever, but does that mean that it needs to appear at all? Like, Right. We don't necessarily have right. an answer. That's the to that. only form it can take, but right. it's like does that when mean it, it has to take a form? When yeah. it takes form, that's the form it takes. But like, yeah, maybe it doesn't have to take a form to listen in on things or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or it can, like, maybe there's so many girls now, it can just blend in by, you know, being some random girl that others just assume is like a new potential. And don't really know. That's true. Who it is. Are there other dead potentials among them that dead potentials? Band name. 
Uh, Oxymoron. Anyway. Yeah. Well, so let's get to the speech, though. Because, like... I mean, so Buffy buries Chloe. Mm -hmm. And then, like, kind of gives people a half a second to, like, say something nice. Mm -hmm. And nobody can. Like, nobody can come up with anything. Mm -hmm. And... So, you know, she comes out with her Chloe was an idiot speech, um, which has has become a really contentious. Uh, yeah. You know, I would imagine, um, or, you know, from from a lot of different angles, one just from, you know, we want to like Buffy and think nice things about her, <laughs> right? Like as the hero and whatever. Uh, but mm -hmm. also just from, like, a, you know, is idiot the best way to describe Chloe as, you know, someone who clearly was suffering from depression or, you know, suicidal thoughts, like, before that, like, I, you know, is there, there may be something of a cultural shift that has happened since the early 2000s in how we deal with depression and mental illness, or, you know, uh, mental disorders or whatever and, and thinking through, you know, how we treat suicide and all of that, um, right. kind of thing. Um, I, I know I've seen in a lot of, in like Facebook forums or other places where I've seen commentary about this, that it definitely seems to bother a lot of people that that, that word in particular idiot, um, is used as opposed to something like coward or, you know, mm some other word that maybe doesn't imply an intelligence thing, but is more of an emotional or, mm -hmm. you know, something along those lines. But anyway, I, anyway, so just even that, like even that opening is like really contentious, but then also, of course, you, when you get into the meat of it, there's plenty of other stuff from a character perspective. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and I think maybe that is the cultural shift. Like, I think you can overstate it. Like, they knew plenty about, you know, uh, depression and mental illness and whatever this was, 2002 or something. So I think it's, you know, it's not that ancient history to kind of, you know. Sure. But on the other hand, like, I feel like probably that is a long time in terms of the culture. And I, I don't think my guess to like try to read the minds of the writers would be that like, they're not thinking of what Chloe did as like clinical depression or mental illness. Like, I don't, I don't think what the intention is, is, is calling those things idiotic. I think they're, and maybe they're wrong about this, but I think what they're thinking of it is as she made a, a choice, you know? Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this like we're assuming that the writers agree with Buffy, which maybe is not the sure. case. Well, that's, um, a, that's a good question. Do we, do we even need to? Like, I mean, it's clear that some of the other characters don't agree with her. And mm -hmm. do we need to? Right. You know? regardless of what the writer slash director may or may not have thought. <laughs> right. Like, right. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I certainly don't think we have to. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I think she's right and she's wrong in some ways. Like, you know, I mean, whether or not, the again, the writers intended for there to be any element of, like, uh, you know, depression or mental illness at play that's kind of unacknowledged by the characters. Um, I think we can kind of diagnose that or, like, assume that there was something like that going on and that Buffy maybe isn't uh, equipped to see that or acknowledge that or know what to recognize if it's there. Um, So Buffy's kind of making assumptions about Chloe having you know, full control over her feelings at any given time or, you know, or assuming that this was a a choice made one day rather than something she might have been struggling with over a period of time. Um, You know, but I mean, on the other hand, I guess I'm I'm never, I'm not going to be able to remember what episodes it was, but I feel like we've had a lot of periodically like once a season or less I feel like we have episodes where Buffy gives a speech like this of like the kind of like I'm on my own and exceptional and I've been carrying you people for a long time and I'm tired of it kind of speech Mm -hmm. um which is the part where I feel like it's a little bit of she's right and wrong. Like she is all alone and she is exceptional. And in some cases, I think the nature of the, the, the beast of the slayer is that she does, you know, not, I don't know. She is responsible without being fully supported by the Scoobies. But on the other hand, the counter to it being that they are there for her and they've been there the entire Time, You know, this entire show has been about the Scoobies being there. Um, So, I don't know. I think part of it is also not recognizing that she has had this thought before, and yet the Scoobies do end up coming through for her. Um, Sure. Yeah. Well, right. It's, I mean, how, how much of it is her shirking her duty to protect, right? Her calling versus teaching, you know, the loafers and moochers how to fend for themselves, and not that I necessarily think she thinks of all of them that way, although that's kind of how she describes that mirror, right? Like, I've been carrying mm-hmm. you too far, too long, rides over. Um, but, yeah, like, there is that sense of, like, all right, you you think I'm wrong? Like, deal with things yourself. And... um I'm not sure Buffy even knows that, like, stepping through the 
portal or whatever will like cause a demon to like come take her place like you know there's stuff about an exchange but i don't i don't know how far buffy really thinks through what that might actually be um Mm -hmm. so like i don't even necessarily want to say like she puts them deliberately in danger but she kind of does put them deliberately in danger Mm -hmm. in a way and you know forces them to like kill or be killed um mm-hmm. yeah i i don't know i mean it's it's hard like she's definitely harsh in her message but it's it would be hard to say that she's not at least somewhat right though as well because Willow has been holding back. And mm-hmm. we understand why Willow's been holding back. We understand her fears and the struggle that she's gone through. So, like, not even in a bad way is she holding back. But she's right. holding back. And Buffy's kind of saying, like, you can't anymore. If we're really mm-hmm. going to fight this thing, then you have to figure out how to control yourself, to, you know, to a point where you can use your your powers in a good way. Um, Mm. And, and even like calling out like Anya who, you know, provides useful (laughs) sarcasm and like Xander getting offended by that. Cause like, he's the sarcastic one. Like, yeah, there is like, what does Anya do at this point besides like, Oh, even, even before, Like, even with Willow, right, there was at least, like, she was, like, doing the whole, like, reading the magic spells in the magic box so that, like, it would help, like, tame Willow's magic or whatever a little bit, right? Like, she was at least doing something even though she was human at that point and whatever. Or actually, was she? No. Or had she gone back to... Anyway, whatever. But, like, now, like... Even at the beginning of this episode, like, she goes out with Spike and Spike has to protect her. And then she comes home and she doesn't really, like, she's apparently living in the Summer's house now, even though she had her own apartment. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is because of DeHoffren sending all the assassin demons after her. So, like, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, like, what is she actually doing there? Like, is she being useful? It, you know, Andrew is the prisoner who bakes cookies and cakes and stuff. But like, I mean, I guess that's useful to some degree, but like, again, like how useful is it really? Like, is he more trouble than he's worth? So I think, I think it's easy to see that like, there's definitely a grain of truth in what she says, but Mm -hmm. certainly like maybe taking it a bit too far and like ostracizing everyone who like, you you want to help you isn't the best way to go out to go about getting them to actually help you no although they do like you know i mean it it at least in so far as this episode is concerned it does kick them in the pants a little bit you know and they come through um you know i mean 
kind of Spike in particular, but all of them really, like, annoyed as they are at Buffy's words, they do kind of band together and figure things out. So if it produces the result that she was looking for, you know, maybe it was the right thing to say. Um, Sure. So... I'm not sure whether to jump ahead or not. I just, this connection just occurred to me with um, what you're saying about um, Willow having, being capable of more, but holding back and Buffy's message being like, it's time to stop doing that. And, you know, embrace this power that you have, even if it's dark and dangerous and everything. Um, It's kind of the same message to Spike, you know? Um, Yeah. you know, you have this ability that you're uh, kind of censoring because you have this soul now. So, you know, he can't indulge in his vampire side without feeling like, you know, that troubling his conscience and everything. Mm-hmm. But again, Buffy's message is, I need the old Spike. Like this new contrite human Spike is not very useful to me. Um, and that's kind of what he, you know, again, he gets the message, he embraces that and uses it to hunt down the demon at the end and everything. And, and yeah. even like puts on the coat, like you said, like right, he you get the symbolic, which dons the, the, the cape of, you know, his old uniform and everything, which he hasn't worn since he's had a soul. Right. He hasn't. And, and uh, so specifically, he hasn't worn that since the episode Seeing Red, which is the one where he assaults her. Mm-hmm. So right. there's definitely a symbolism in that, I think. Um, right, right. But yeah. So here's a potential connection. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to the line that she refuses to cross. Like what, you know, they, they want her to sort of, you know kind of I feel like the message to Buffy is the same as to Willow and Spike like you need to do the useful thing of what's going to win you have the capability of being more powerful but it involves embracing something dark and dangerous um Buffy's telling everybody else to do this but she decides not to you know she holds back Mm. you know she could do more but it would cost something it would mean something to her humanity um isn't that true spike and willow um i guess what's the difference why is it okay for willow to embrace this dark magic that she has had terrible experiences with that's like very nearly destroyed her life um why is it okay for spike to embrace his vampire side when he's finally had a chance to, you know, be free of that in hundreds of years. Um, But Buffy, you know, says, um, you know, this will make me ready for the fight, but by making me less human, I'm not going to do that. She has principles. Like she has like a line that is too far and, Embracing a non-human darkness is is part of that. Um, yeah. 
she is she a hypocrite? I guess is my, my question here. I mean, the way you kind of set it up, it certainly sounds like she could be. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think even she questions whether or not she was right to make that decision, right? Um, well, right. So if she is being hypocritical, and that so then it could go two directions. Was she wrong to refuse this offer for greater power or is she wrong to expect from Willow and Spike and the others, what she's not willing to give herself. Sure. Um, like, is it a thing of like, yes, we have to do everything we can to win, but we also have to have principles. Like there are certain there's a certain fundamental humanity that we can't be willing to give up or else what makes us different than the bad guys or so goes the traditional like ethical, you know, argument for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't, without seeing how the season plays out, it's hard for me to say like what the right answer is, but. um, Or, I mean, and there may not be one. If there is one single right answer. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so, I mean, we've only got a few minutes left here, but... uh, Yeah, maybe we should talk about, like, that mythology. Um, This kind of reveal that the original... Slayer, and I guess all Slayers, have in them something demonic. That that was, you know, that that was how the Slayer, this is the origin myth, is that it was created, you know, these men gave to a girl um, something that they were probably afraid to take on themselves, you know, that gave her this extra power in order to fight the demons of the world. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, they made her a bit like the demons. Um, Yeah. Which makes sense with all the, like, I feel like thematically that's been in the show, even if it wasn't explicitly that like, there's something dark about the Slayers that, you know, there's, they have one foot in, you know, kind of the demon world and they can't do their job without embracing that side to a certain extent. Yep. Um, Yeah, I mean, and it, I mean it. It makes it more of a parallel, then, right? So it's, it it sort of answers the question of you know why does the Slayer have super strength and why you know is she able to sort of do all the things she can do? And it you know sort of counteracts those one offs or two offs of like Angel and Spike as you know, demons with, uh, you know, vampires with souls or, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we've talked about how over the course of the show, 
the idea of demonness versus you know humanness sort of becomes grayer right and so this yeah. is this is another maybe shading in of of some of that distinction um yeah you know i guess so the question is like so she goes through this portal and like what is it is it is she in like present day somewhere africa or whatever is she it, back in it time kind of seems to be like i feel like the assumption at the beginning is that she goes back in time um but I don't know that that's true. Like, there's weird little lines about, like, um, like, this is why we summoned you. And she's like, wait, I thought we summoned you. Like, there's this confusion about who's, whose plan is this? And they're definitely, like, giving skills to her that would be... Right, like, like is this... So- you know, so, transferable to her real time. So is this so, it, right? Is it? Is it like? Well, it's been however many hundreds or thousands of years, and now it's time to like, like we need to recharge the battery, kind of thing. Or is it like? Or is it Buffy has the same right? Is this like Slayer two point Like right? You know, Buffy has exactly the same sort of powers that the first Slayer had, but like. Now they figured out a way, you know, through years of meditation and, you know, mystical retreat, you know, now they can actually give her something more than any of the previous layers have had and which is necessary to, you know, fight mm. the fight that's coming. I I don't um, know that there's an answer to that. I just, like... That's yeah, sort of and a I, question I, I wonder. Yeah. I don't know that there is either, but my sense of it was more the second, that was the latter, that this was a new, she was going to, they're offering her the option to level up. Like, in the same way that the original Slayer did, but, like, more so, because... I guess why I think that is like the point of the origin myth is to say that this has always been true. Like she's not just going and reenacting what's already been done because she already has that power. Like she's inherited the skills that of what they gave to the first slayer. And so I guess like maybe, I guess it could be a kind of renewal of something, but I don't think the suggestion is that Buffy's powers have waned at all. I think, you know, it seems to me like they're offering something even greater. Um, so, yeah. yeah. But she turns it down. She um, does. Because, you know, she has standards. And, you know, her her humanity is something she won't bargain with which i can't say i disagree with even if it but cuts if, against the message she was giving the others but you if, know? if she already has the slayer power and the slayer power originates in demonic then she's not fully human anyway sure 
Right. What's a, what? She's already gone down What's that road. What's a little road. more going to hurt? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate yes. there a bit, but. Well, I think that's an open-ended question. How much more could a little bit more hurt? We don't know. You know, it's like what exactly they're offering her and what it means is not very well defined. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but they do at least give her one thing, which is a peek into like what she's up against, which is this like, you know, and seemingly infinite or yeah. very, very a, large a amount of army. very scary, yeah, like yeah. A, vampire demon. Right, things. the 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 Turrican, they're the uber vamps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them. Right. So and presumably all under that little seal, where we've seen. A yes, couple of right. Them like this is like up. right underneath, like right. the floor, um, and I guess maybe that's another interpretation of the. You know, she says they showed me that the first Slayer was right. It, it isn't enough. Is the it her power? Like, you know, if she rejected like that extra Slayer power, maybe the it that it refers to is the power that she already has. Like. Mm-hmm. She can't defeat, you know, this army unless she would have made this bargain. And so, you know, you know the the question becomes then: having turned down this power and knowing that it's not enough to defeat what's coming, what what does it take in the seven? episodes we have left (laughs) you know what does it take to get enough or to try to get enough like what is what is the the need you know what is the where do they go from here basically right right may isn't very far away so she has right (laughs) Yeah, it usually happens around May when things yeah. go weird. Right around, yeah. right around you know season finale time. Yeah, right around like the end of <laughs> right around May sweeps is when like things get you know um, pretty crazy. So um, no, that's, that's a funny. That is a funny line. Funny um, it's a, it's a little. So, it's happening a little early this year. Yeah, it usually doesn't happen until May. <laughs> um, yeah. So okay. Um, so. Um, right. We, we, well, all right. So it's not going to be, it's, it, you know, it's not going to be anything in terms of strength of numbers or, you know, ability or anything, you know, like it's, I don't know what it would be, but it's going to have to be some sort of oblique change of thinking, like, mm. you know. That's how she's, the few victories she's had against the first have been more like that, have been more about like tricking it, you know, or, or her weird thing of, I'm going to let it swallow me and it's going to choke. Like it's, it's through letting it win that somehow we're going to beat it. Like, I don't know, some weird kind of Mm. 
like use its strength against it kind of thing. Um, yeah, not that I'm, I have I'm any not, ideas of I'm not what necess- that would be, but I'm not necessarily trying to get you to like make a prediction to stick to or anything. I just like that that becomes the question I think for the rest of the season is like we know we now know in a much more tangible way what the actual stakes are. Right. Like I mean this is we're no it's no longer like the nebulous first. It's oh there's actual things to punch under there. But there's just a freaking lot of them. Way too many of them. And yeah. so, so now it becomes strategy and tactics of figuring out how to do that in a way that's going to save everyone and, you know, ideally not kill all of yeah. the Slayer and all her potentials as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, do we have... So, like... Do we just have, like, Buffy doing the flatliner thing where she just, like, keeps dying to activate more and more potential? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that That's not the answer. I'll tell you definitively. Um, although that would be kind of a funny way to do it. Um, but, yeah. Uh, any, so I know, like, we had kind of jotted down a few notes about kind of the other relationships or, or moments about the other Scoobies. I feel like we talked about some of them, um, mm-hmm. like Anya and Xander a little bit. Um, I mean, the Spike and Anya stuff is kind of weird at the beginning, but like, yeah, we, I don't think we need to read too much into it. I think it was just kind of a lighter note on the mm-hmm. episode. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's not, like, a ton. I mean, there's little, like, again, that workhorse episode of moving the pieces, like, Willow and Kennedy, you know, some tension about, like, yeah. okay, Willow explained things to her, but Kennedy first, you know, gets kind of a peek at what that means, and yeah. so that kind and, of gives her some pause and everything, but, um, and, but I think they're all threads that are ongoing, so yeah. we don't necessarily need to make too much of them, like in this episode. Yeah. Um, and, and Wood's sort of confirmation through his questions and then finally seeing Spike wearing his mother's jacket, mm-hmm. you know, about who, who he really is. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, well, with that in mind, then let's move to BSG. So we're in the middle of our three part finale. Here. Yeah. I know, a little, um, a little tough to talk about. This is, you know, kind of a single episode. We're talking about, like, the middle... Act or whatever. Not yeah. even, like, the middle episode, just, like, the middle Part. chunk. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. kind of, like, begins and ends a bit well, randomly, but... And, and we may kind of go through this quickly, because I feel like a lot of that is even just, like, action. Like, straight up. Ships right. well, shooting at each other and, you know, infiltrating. And not that, like, yeah. stuff doesn't happen, but, like, like it's kind of not really a lot that you can talk about with that part. No, um, it's, yeah, not remembering necessarily where every part began and ended. Um, 
that definitely jumped out to me watching it was like, this is very much like the action climax of the finale, you know? Like, mm. not that there won't be any action at all, but like, I think it's safe to say it's like mostly more resolution and like character stuff um, and like the ending of the story, whereas like the big, this is the obligatory like big space battle. Right. Um, and that is like, like we're just gonna fun, go it's, all it's out. It's fun enough. It's fun enough to watch, but it's not necessarily like the deep, meaty analysis kind <laughs> of stuff. Sure. Yeah, like I mean, this is the all-out like close quarters, you know, Battlestar versus, you know, base. Well, it's not really base ship, I guess. Right? It's the colony or whatever. Like, it's kind of a big base ship. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. But, like, that sort of thing of just, like, you know, hammering it and, you know, seeing all the ships lying around. um, Yeah, like, yeah, and you get the, like, gunfights and close, like, hand-to-hand stuff in the corridors, and then you kind of zoom out, and it's, you know, vipers and, you know, all that kind of thing, so... You know what kind of... I mean, I know... I know, like, there's a limited number of vipers and stuff on the Galactica... But, yeah. like, at the end where they're like, we lost three Vipers. It's like, that's it? <laughs> like, really? I don't know. Well, I wonder if it was, like, three out of six. <laughs> yeah, like, how many, right, exactly. Like, how many did we have to begin with? Like, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, they are down to bare bones. Yeah, now, I and, guess. and, like, I mean, you can intellectually make a thing. But it just, like, yeah. in the moment where it's like, we lost, like, three Vipers and four raptors, and it's like there was a lot of stuff flying around there. Like, yeah, right. That's all okay. But yeah, that's I mean, funny. so the other thing is like we get some more of these flashbacks, which I feel like are not so much insightful as reinforcing of the personalities that we've already come to know. Right. So you sure. get like Adama and Ty and Ellen at the strip club. Of course, Ellen's going to get up on stage. And, of mm-hmm. course, like, Adama's going to refuse the lap dance but let the stripper keep Saul's money. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, all of that's fine. Um, you know, right, and they have the same fights about... Yeah. Like, who Ty's really in love with that they've been right. having. Like, <laughs> right, like... <laughs> for the entire series. Um, yeah, who's, who's Ty's first love? Um, yeah. You know, you know what bugs me though. I have to say, and I feel like not just in these flashbacks, but in like, I guess late period BSG a little bit. So what bugs me about the flashbacks is he over the course of the series, Adama becomes way more of a drunk. Yes. Than he was at the beginning. Right. Now, I could forgive it if it's showing that as, like, a linear thing of, like, he starts out as the really, you know, I don't know. Straight, like, like together, yeah. stern. Like, he's the contract. Like, he's the foil to tie. Right. Right. And then, but then it shows the breakdown over time as, like, the journey and all of the losses and all the stress like starts to wear him down and everything. 
But what I feel like the flashbacks do is imply that he was always like this. Mm. Like, not just in the strip club with Ty, but then, like, the way he talks to Boomer. Right. Like, the way he ridicules her, like, really kind of bugs me in that scene. Like, not just dresses her down, like, um, gives her tough love about how to be an officer and what it takes to be a soldier and all that stuff. But, like, kind of laughs at her and, you know, and is, like, drinking the whole time. So you kind of get the idea that, like, I don't know. It's weird. I don't really know why. I feel like there's a little bit of a character assassination going on there. Of, like, and I wonder- trying to make, it, make him seem more tie-like than he was earlier in the series. Yeah. I, w- I wonder how much of that, too, is even just in this episode where you have Lee saying, like, Dad believes him in, in himself, in his uniform, his system, his way of life. And if you're not with him in that little tiny bubble, then you might as well not exist. Like, which I don't, like, that attitude, I mean, obviously that's suspect, you know, and biased, but, like... Sure. Like... If if they're trying to like show that Lee's right to some extent in that, mm-hmm. like that's I think along the same lines as what you're talking about. Like, you know, in that like I don't think he's necessarily that way when it, the show starts. But then like I think that scene with Boomer that you were just referencing does kind of have him behaving in the way that Lee sort of describes. Like mm. He's like Adama is the be all and end all, and and when is that happen? Because that's happening before the attack, yeah. Because right? Boomer's right. already a Viper pilot, and like yeah. an experienced Viper pilot, right? At the beginning of right. the series, so she's still she's still making mistakes. She's still not landing right, like because it starts with her and Tyrrell fighting about. Oh, you didn't land it right. No, it was you. You didn't put the part in right. Like mm. you know. So I feel like it's kind of in line with that, but this is like an earlier, like where she's like almost crashing the ship every time she tries to, like a, this is her in her very rookie, like first days. Sure. Um, she's still newer when the show starts, but she's not like brand new. Right. Um, so yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Like, and, and to be... <laughs> Edward James almost playing drunk Adama isn't always the greatest either. So like, like yeah. that, that like, might be part of the gutter, it too. Like why? Like, I, honestly, I had to like kind of fast forward through that section. Cause it's like, it's just gross. Like, I don't, why, why do I want to see this? Um, yeah. So anyway, so, Anyway, moving on from that. Like like I was saying, like the flashbacks, although actually the way that you sort of described Adama there is kind of refuting what I said, because I said the flashbacks sort of reinforce what we already know about the characters, but, but you're kind of saying that they're retconning the characters a bit. <laughs> um, well, that's kind of what made me think to say it, is yeah. like, I, I feel like, if that's what they're trying to do, I feel like maybe there is a little bit of rewriting of 
the past there. Yeah. Um, um, and and, and I, I guess what bothers me is I don't see the purpose of it. Like, sure. Like, and I'm fine with the characters being flawed, but maybe it, it, that's not a very consistent flaw. It seems to me like, yeah. Um, I, anyway, I mean, I guess it, <clears throat> the the two together of <clears throat> the strip club scene and uh, the boomer scene. Um, kind of are damning. Like you could almost believe that like just, it was just a strip club thing. It's like, okay. So one time thing, they talk about how hard it was to like get him to come this, even this one time. Mm -hmm. And whereas apparently like, I guess it's not surprising to think that like Saul and Ellen go to the strip club together all the time. I guess that's normal. Sure. Um, And that actually (laughs) seems perfectly normal for them. Like they enjoy doing that. It's a fun outing together. (laughs) So I guess you could you could understand that like with this like big decision about his retirement and you know yeah whatever like that this could be like Adama you know unchained or whatever like like he's not he's not responsible Adama anymore and so he can kind of like cut, let loose a little bit um but yeah, like, like with the boomer aspect to it, like it does seem to to be a little more cavalier with his character, mm. I guess. Uh, so yeah, I don't, anyway. Um, and then Baltar, like, we get sort of like the deepening, if you can call it that, of his relationship with Caprica, right? Like. Mm-hmm by her sort of figuring out how to take care of his father Mm -hmm. um, and all of that. Um, So I don't, I'll be honest. I don't really know how to go through this episode because like, yeah, like similar to the, the battle plan, like even, or the, the actual battle Like, even before that, it's all just, like, the planning stuff, right? Like, it's, like, we ended the last part with, like, Adama being, like, okay, let's go do it. Let's get it done. Mm -hmm. And and now, like, you you spend, like, ten minutes of, like, you know, him and Lee and Starbuck and whoever else, like, going over, like, their plans. And then it's, like another several minutes of like them just trying to convince Adama, well, basically Mm -hmm. Starbuck trying to convince Adama to like move Sam, which is like ridiculous that he gives that much like resistance to it, I guess, because it's like, they're already like, they're already burning the ships behind them. Right. Like they're already like on their way out the Harbor and like going, and then suddenly like, this one thing's gonna stop him, like you know, hooking up Sam to the CIC so that they can do what they need to do is gonna like suddenly. Nope, I called it off. Just kidding. We're not going on this mission that we've all been planning for, and that I did this whole big speech about 
you know, whatever yeah. duty and heroism and yeah, whatnot. So, like, that feels kind of like bizarre. Um, but of course, it gives like Starbuck a good opportunity to kind of call him out and. Right. Well, and I feel like it is more about what she says is articulating like a theme rather than it is like about Adama. Like, or like he, it's an excuse for her to give that speech, I guess. And I guess the fact that like his resistance doesn't last past that shows it's not like we're not going to build the whole episode around his refusal to do this. It's like all right, one yeah. scene. He gives one scene of resistance and that's it. Um, but it's more about like her speech about, um, you know, the, the crossing of the lines and, you know, sacrificing yourself or your thing, you know, your, your ideals for each other. Um, talk about, talk about, uh, unrequited love Adama never loved Ty the way he loves his ship <laughs> yep well doesn't does Ellen say that somebody said that at some point probably like, like probably yeah, yeah. Like, that sounds like something know, Ellen would say but you know. but again like it says like the subjectiveness there calls it into suspect but we know sure. it's true <laughs> yes right right <laughs> yeah, like, um, yeah, well, in Gata, too, of, of, you know, if only you cared as much about the people on the ship as about the ship itself. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and the, the show is called Battlestar Galactica, so I feel like there's, it's been a character, and, you know, he certainly treats it like one. But, um, yeah, and so I guess it's all, like, Inevitably, the series, in a way, you realize, had to end with the CIC being transformed into this kind of like hybrid chamber, mm. you know, of like this is this is the this is what we've been working towards is this complete melding of the two into like where you can't tell where one starts and the other begins and. There's, like, gooey tendrils hanging over, like, the console and everything. Um, so, yeah. I mean, so he does resist, but not, like, for very long. Um... Anything else about, like, the Adama? I mean, I feel like, kind of like what you said, like, once the action gets going, there's not a lot of, like, um, huge character development for him. It's more like he's being commander, calling the shots from the CIC. Um, I don't have anything else for him, no. Um, okay. So, yeah. 
So maybe let's tackle Baltar next. Because, <laughs> I, I mean... There is some good stuff for Baltar. Yeah. And it's so hard because, like, like, we get, like, everybody. And so, like, we don't yeah. really spend a lot of time with everyone. But, but yeah, I think Baltar... We get some good stuff with. Um, and, of course, the big thing for him, right, is, like... There's kind of two parts to it, right? So there's the the decision to go with the rescue team, right? And and not to abandon ship and go with Paula mm-hmm. and his harem. Um, when... Hmm. I mean, there, you know, there's the head sick stuff, like, you know, uh, trust in God's plan for you. Well, what is God's plan for me? Well, you're following it now. And it's like, like, it's that thing of like, well, can you, can you really do anything but what you're doing? <laughs> like, like, what is that even, like, if you're already doing God's plan, then like, what, why is there... Like, what else is there to even do? Like, I don't know. There's kind of the weird thing of, like, I'm not saying it very well, but, like, you know, that you have to trust the plan, but you don't know what the plan is, but I guess just go by instinct, which is, like, what you were going to do anyway. So, like, sure. what's, I don't know, what's the value in that sort of exchange? But... But ultimately, well, I guess, yeah. you know, that, that you know, choosing to leave and then you get, you know, like, Lee throwing him a gun and, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, right. This is his selfless thing. Like, you know. Right. The, right. Going back the, to the, the previous episode of, like, have you ever done anything truly selfless? And this is it. Um, so... Like, and, and I feel, I don't know if this is quite what you were saying, but what's interesting about that is um, he seems to, or at least at first, go against Head Six's, like, guidance, right? Like, the, like, the implication of what you're saying is, like, okay, what's God's plan? You're following it right now taking charge of mankind's remnants and guiding them to their end. So I feel like the implication is that if he's following God's plan and taking charge of mankind's remnants, that means to do what he's currently doing, which is to leave with the civilians, right? Like God's plan for you is to survive and to take your flock and become a leader of this, you know, whatever remains of mankind and lead them. But that's not what he does. You know, like he changes his mind and, or seemingly that's not, you know, I, I, anyway, what I'm dancing around is that there's ambiguity in it. And I feel like he kind of ends up like following God's plan by not following it. If that's what, if that makes any sense, like, what head six is implying to him is not what he ends up deciding to do, but that in the end is kind of the right thing to do. 
Um, like, when the head characters appear later, they don't say, they don't, like, reprimand Baltar for going against the plan. Right. Like, oh, it was your, it was your, pl- it was your path to, you know, follow your flock and lead the fleet. Um, they clearly, like, smile down on Baltar and Caprica as if, like, you've done everything right and, you know, mm-hmm. this is all going according to plan. So, I don't know. Is there, like, reverse psychology going on here? Or, like, is Baltar supposed to... I kind of feel like he's just supposed to think for himself. Like, the revelation is to not just do what Head Six is telling him, which is kind of what she wants him to do. Like, I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, I don't know. I guess it kind of gets to what you're saying of you're following God's plan because can you do anything else, really? Um, yeah, I don't... Which is I mean, kind of Baltar's cult of narcissism, of it's God's plan because it's what I do. And if if I'm perfect and loved, then I can do no wrong, and everything I do is according to plan. Yeah. I don't... I mean, I guess I took... Well, you said, uh, you know, about the ending there of, of like, Head Six and Head Baltar sort of approving of the corporeal versions as that was the plan. But, like, I don't know. I guess I don't have... I don't know. Right, so I guess it is the plan, and they approve, but the point is that Baltar comes to that decision on his own. Like, he he comes to the right plan by going against what the head character tells him to do, seemingly. Sure. Which is maybe like, I mean, not that he's never defied the head characters before, but like, I feel like this is the first time where he's deliberately made a break from that of like, he's doing the selfless thing by Lee's standard of not protecting himself mm-hmm. versus like doing something dangerous to himself for somebody else. So it kind of passes the altruism test that way. But it also kind of shows an independence of thought from what, quote, God's plan is supposed to be for him. You know, that, like, he kind of says, like, well, screw God's plan and I'm going to do this other thing instead. Um, And I guess he's kind of rewarded for that. Like, in the end, that was the intention the whole time. It's just that he wasn't, like guided to that he had to kind of find his own way there sure um so i guess i mean the other thing is then uh 
his sort of speeches in in the uh you know after well so so here's the thing because like i i think this is still within the bounds of where we talked about but i think i watched a little past where mm. where i was supposed to so like it's the part where he's talking with yeah, Pavel, he gives his whole yeah, like the his, whole speech there about yeah god's not on anyone's side because nobody's on my side no um <laughs> i totally had a tree beard moment there yeah um in hearing it but uh yeah yeah i mean so and this goes back to like who is god you know i am god and all of that like god's a force of nature beyond good and evil good and evil we created those you want to break the cycle break the cycle of birth death rebirth destruction escape death well, that's in our hands, in our hands only. It requires a leap of faith. It requires we live in hope, not fear. Um, which is interesting then if like, like, so is, is going back to the whole idea of like following God's plan while you're following it now, am I? By taking charge of mankind's res- remnants and guiding them to their end. But like, he's saying here that there is no plan right like Mm -hmm. that it's in our hands and our hands only and that we created good and evil and that god is somehow beyond that i don't know it's it's maybe not something to build an entire theology around i guess Um, so here's like what strikes me like more the last like couple times i've watched it is like I, so can i before you get into that can i just point out yeah, too yeah. like this is also to cavil right like who's the atheist priest right so yeah sure um well that brings maybe this this might contradict the point i'm about to make um but it's kind of seems so you you get although we don't quite i think in the next episode we can talk more about what the you know the meaning of the opera house or whatever um but we at least get like some reveal of that that like the cic is you know the the reality of what these visions of the opera house have been about um and this is baltar's destiny is like he and caprica bring hera into the opera house and it's you know, essential that they be there for some reason. And it kind of seems like this is why they're there. I mean, A, they bring Hera, but also Baltar being the one to kind of, kind of seems to me like Baltar's BS, like, saves the day a little bit. (laughs) Like, like, is it finally, like, paid off in some way? Um, Because I agree, like, this isn't really a coherent theological statement of any kind really um you know he's both talking it's very like wishy-washy and new agey in that way of you know the way that people talk about like well i'm spiritual but not religious like god you know i believe in god but god is really everything and he's 
a force and he's me and he's, you know, the world and, you know, all this kind of stuff where you're not quite sure like what he's talking about. Um, but I kind of feel like what he says is less important than like the fact that he says it. And he goes on this big, long speech, which works to get Cavill talking and to get Cavill negotiating. And it's like, is this just like the ultimate culmination of Baltar's ability to talk his way out of any tight situation? Um, you know, I don't know. The part of it that's making me pause is it's kind of Ty who really gives the clincher, right? It's like, it, it's the resurrection. It's Ty's offer of exchanging the resurrection technology that really is the final thing that gets Cavill to, um, like, exchange. Sure. But but I still feel like it, it's... It, the setup is all about Baltar's big speech. Like this is why Baltar is here is to say these things in this moment that only he would be able to say in a way that makes it, it kind of diffuses the situation enough to start negotiating with Cavill. Yeah. I mean, and that's always been Baltar's strength, right? Is the talking. The talking right. his way out of pretty much anything and everything. Right. So I guess I kind of feel like, for me, that's kind of what his whole thing is about. Is it less about, like, is what he's saying true? I, I don't know. But I kind of feel like the fact that he is the one there saying it is more the importance of that scene to me. I don't know. Unless there's more theological nitty-gritty to be mined from. No, you're probably You're probably right. I guess I I would like I would like there to be more consistency, I guess, between the whole like follow God's plan, God has a plan for you, this and that, and then and and something that isn't just like ah God's just some force of nature and whatever blah blah right. blah like but whatever that's fine like I'm not well I, and I guess I feel like we definitely independently of Baltar even get evidence that like God or the gods or the supernatural is a player in the story but I don't feel like anything Baltar says is necessarily definitively true of what that being is. Like, or at least we have to take it with a grain of salt because it's Baltar. Like, I don't, I don't feel like, and maybe Ron Moore would disagree with me. Maybe this is the articulation of his religious views, but like, (laughs) I kind of doubt that, like, I, I don't feel obligated to conclude that Baltar has the correct, like, theology of you know the Battlestar kind of universe even if we can conclude that there is 
some divine hand. Well, I mean, I guess this goes back to, do you think that Baltar, do you think that Head Six and Head Baltar are angels or whatever? Like, are they, are they separate entities that, you know, have some kind of presence and, you know, commission from God to uh, inform. And in which case, I mean, again, I, I suppose this goes back to, like, if Head 6 is misleading Baltar as to the course of action in order to get him to do what she wants him to do, then then I suppose it's unreliable, you know, there's an unreliability there to what she says as well. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, it just seems to me like that there would be some better explanation, but that's fine. Like that's maybe an unreasonable expectation on my part. So we can probably move on. We've talked about Gaius fracking Baltar too much. Um, perhaps. Uh, and I think you're right. Like, I think ultimately, like, pro it's probably less important what Baltar says. And this is just generally true, not even just this episode. Probably less important what he actually says than that he is capable of saying whatever it needed to be said to get him out of whatever predicament he currently happens to be in. Um, that I can agree with. Whether it's factually correct or not. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you kind of asked the question of, like, do we think that the, the head characters are, you know, independent of Baltar? I would say yes. I feel like there's enough evidence, you know, beside the fact that she's said that from, like, almost the first episode of, like, I'm an angel of God here to guide you. Um, I, I feel like there are many different instances of things independently of Baltar that show that to be the case, that she is not purely in his head as like a psychological manifestation. Um, however, like, I think you could get as creative as you want about exactly what they are. Um, because I don't know for me that, that we have a lot of evidence, definitive evidence of, about their nature other than like what Baltar pontificates about them. Sure. Um, like, are they angels of God in the Christian sense or are they gods in the Greco Roman sense that we've had the, you know, the colonists believe in all this time? Like maybe the world is more polytheistic than the Cylons have been saying it is. Um, you know, I think you could probably take it in a like, these are some sort of super race of aliens who can like take on the form of these characters since this is a space opera after all. Like, you know, I, I don't think you have to necessarily, you know, say that they are angels in like a biblical sense, but I think you could like, I, to me, the, the, the pure like chip slash, psychological torment things are ruled out by 
too many other things, like their physical interactions with the world or, you know, or the fact that there's, you know, two of them and that Caprica sees them too and that kind of thing. Um, but. Sure. But that's just me. You can, I don't know if you, you certainly don't have to agree with that. Or we can come back and I mean, revisit we'll it have, at the very end. We'll have chances to talk about that again, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah. So, okay. Um, let's talk about Roslyn. Um, so we get the flashback of her which we'd already known that she was going to go on a date with a younger man. And it turns out to be someone who was a former student. And that's fine, I guess. Like, I don't, like, good for her. She seems fine with it. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's cool. Um, I don't know that there's much to say about that. Like... I don't really have a lot either. I feel like of all the flashbacks, both this time and last, mm. like Rosalind's continued to be the most sort of perplexing to me. Like, I'm not mm -hmm. sure what they're supposed to be. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they give us. Mm. If anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even more so this time, I think, both because there's, like, less of it, but also, like, heavy-handed as it was, at least you could get something more of a connection of, like, you know, the loss of her family and everything. Whereas, like, yeah, I'm not really sure what to do with the date. Um, that whole storyline. I'm sure there's some piece of it in the third part, but now I don't even remember what it is. So we'll have to like see if the conclusion of that storyline adds anything, but yeah. I mean, I'm not even sure there's a ton to say about like her stuff in the main story either. Like, um, I mean, I like her farewell to Coddle. That's a very sure nice kind of rounding out of that relationship and everything. Um, but um, again, like it's mostly action. It's like yeah, she's it's, helping in the infirmary, and then it goes into like the the, the opera, the house opera house, stuff. like yeah. the the dream vision quest kind of thing. Um, which she doesn't do a ton of. It's mostly just a reenactment of that same dream scenario that she's had, like, you know, for a couple seasons, so. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, then, I guess 
the last individual we should talk about is probably Boomer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, also not a ton to say other than that, like she takes things into or her own hands. Um, and by that, I mean, Simon's head and twists it. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And saves, I, I, sorry. I kind of enjoy his like very clinical, you know, like, well, you know, you overestimated things and it's all about mathematics. And if you know the things, whatever, and then like, he doesn't see her coming, like, you know, that's a very, you know, Simon is always the, the rational kind of robotic scientist, um, who can't predict, you know, the kind of crazy human choices that, you know, Boomer is capable of making. Um, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, just, uh, yeah, anyway, um, Yeah, I don't. I mean, other than she saves, she saves Hera and returns her, and then gets shot. Like that's kind of all that needs to be said. Um, we kind of already talked about the Adama scene with her, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we need to rehash that from her angle per se. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, and then I don't know, like there's a lot of like little like one off sort of like check ins slash goodbyes. Um I mean you get like Athena and Hilo during the action like so we see them there. Mm-hmm. Um and then again, like there's the whole like opera house thing that Athena's part of. Um But yeah, like in the action well so I guess before the action you get like Adama promoting Hoshi to the fleet admiral, mm-hmm. um, which I sort of said to you before we started recording that like it feels like Hoshi became really important all of a sudden. Um, like he went from being sort of like this background communications officer slash Gata's boyfriend to like admiral. <laughs> yeah and i mean you could try to try to sort of play it off um not play it off but like you could try to sort of draw a parallel there to like the very beginning of you have like adama who's a commander you know suddenly becoming like the only commander in the fleet and eventually he becomes admiral right Mm -hmm. um and Roslyn, of course, being like more dramatically the like whatever forty second was it in line or forty eighth in line or whatever it was yeah something like that um forty second because you mentioned Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy earlier so <laughs> that's probably what popped into head 
my head. Um, but, uh, yeah, sort of, you know, being jettisoned up the chain of command. Um, I feel like maybe, maybe not quite that dramatically, but that's sort of how Hoshi mm-hmm. is. It's like all of a sudden mm-hmm. you happen to be the, uh, highest ranking officer left after like right. everyone else is leaving to go on the suicide mission. Right. It's like, at least Adama had like commanded a battle star before. Like Hoshi's yeah. like, well, and like what, officer. what is he, what is he? Cause the battle star is leaving. Like they're taking the battle star too. So he's right. admiral of a fleet, but th- he doesn't even have a ship. Without a ship. I mean, unless he's Downgraded. like taking over yeah. Colonial One or something. You know, right, maybe. right, right. Um, or in a raptor. Um, like. Right. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. So like, anyway, so we see him. We see um, Romo Lampkin is now the president, which is kind of more ridiculous in a way than yeah. uh, others who have held the position. <laughs> yes. Uh yeah. And I mean that's yeah. fine. Like I feel like some of these are just like okay, these people are still around and we're saying goodbye and Right. Right. These are all the like little recurring characters that we have to sort of you know. And and it's like like you said before like everybody we really care about is going on the mission, so it's like who else is left? Like, well, all right, who do we have left that we can send with the fleet that we won't like miss too much um but yeah no i mean i think i think hoshi does become very important and i think there's a reason why is after d and gata are gone like that's like a significant chunk of your cic crew um you know like and and obviously Adama and Ty are both going on this mission. There's no way they're not going to go. And I feel like those would have been your ideal candidates of like, you know, who are the loyal CIC officers that could have stepped up? It would have been them. Um, But they're not there anymore. So it sort of falls further down the chain to to Hoshi. Um, So I feel like that's why you suddenly start seeing... Not a ton more of him, but a fair amount more of him, like, in the last, like, couple of episodes. But, yeah. And President Romo is just a bit silly. Yeah. Um, I also can't not acknowledge the loss of Racetrack, who's you know, a favorite who has, you know, dodged many close situations, but finally, uh, meets her end here, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. Which there's not like a ton of, um, casualties in this episode. So I guess, I guess kind of like Hoshi and Lampkin, it's like, well, who are we killing but that's at like the bottom of the ladder so that, you know, it's like a fairly minor character, but mm. indeed, I don't know. I guess Boomer is really the most significant, like death, like, you know, I, which I think is easy to forget because there's less of her as it goes on. 
But like she was like a huge part of especially that first season. Um, right. So it, it, I think, is pretty significant that she's well, you know, finally kind of meets her end here, and in a kind of like awful way. Like, yeah, she's like, I, I, Boomer gets a raw deal in life in general, I think, and like she. She dies in the same fashion of like trying to do the right thing and meets no forgiveness for her mistakes. Yeah. Which I don't know. Maybe that says, I don't know if that says more about Athena or the writers, but. <laughs> I mean. There's, yeah, there's a lot to blame for Boomer. And, and I, I don't know. I, not that like, I mean, I I know we've talked about like the idea of like the sympathetic character before. I don't know. I don't find her that sympathetic, I guess. Because like, yeah, I just don't like. Like, early on, when she's, like, first uh, sort of discovering her Cylon-ness, mm-hmm. and you can, like, you, you definitely feel sympathetic towards her from a, like, oh my gosh, there's this stuff that she's programmed to do and doesn't have any way to, like, control herself. Mm-hmm. But, like, as time goes on, and, like, like it seems like once she shoots Adama... That's, like, the end of her under, you know, uh, like, hidden programming or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and from then on, it's just, it becomes all her own choices as far as, you know, kidnapping Hera and doing naked Tai Chi in front of Cavill. And I'm not sure which of those is worse. Um, no, I, but like, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's a point where she just, she does stop being sympathetic because of all the bad choices that mm-hmm. she makes. And, and I think there's a point where she could have chosen, she could have like redeemed herself and become like, it wouldn't have necessarily been easy, but, like, she could have, like, redeemed herself and overcome the killing of Adama. hmm But she sort of self-destructs, and mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a callous person, but... Well, and I think there's a difference between, like, I feel like I've, I find her sympathetic, but that doesn't mean that I agree with her choices. I guess would be the distinction. Like, I don't think, especially like towards the end, her choices aren't, um, like very defensible, but I still feel like I have more sympathy than it seems like the characters do for her. Um, but maybe I'm remembering innocent boomer from, her earliest days. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 maybe it's a tale of two boomers. Like, cause, cause I do feel like there is definitely, 
a change that happens after the Adama shooting. Sure. Yes, and, definitely. I mean, and and not that there shouldn't be, but I mean, like even like a like it becomes harder to blame anything she does after that on like programming. Yes. Uh, no. Know, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Insofar as like all of the other Cylons like have mm-hmm. independent agency, like she does as well. No, and absolutely, I agree with that. I'm not. I'm not saying that like every bad choice she makes is is programming. Um, yeah, I just like for me that's kind of where the sympathy ebbs mm-hmm. is is when when it starts becoming like you can no longer blame it on sort of like some hidden mm-hmm. you know instruction or whatever um, mm-hmm. to the point where like yeah she's just kind of being willfully destructive and chaotic and mm-hmm. yeah, all of that. So. Sure. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so we kind of end with this deal being struck, right? That mm-hmm. uh, Ty and, and the others, the other final five Cylons will give... Uh, resurrection to Cavill and the remainder of Cavill's crew in in return for or in trade for Hera. So I guess we'll see where that picks up next week. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. we'll be back um, actually with another episode of Buffy. So, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. All right. Sounds good. See you then.